Amen. You may be seated. Well, what do you guys think? We're in. Isn't that great? It's been a, uh, quite the journey. We, we went from the World Indigenous Missions Building. Anybody remember that? Two of you? Yeah, yep, that's right. And that's, so you clapped because you remember. It was 500 degrees. Uh, <laughs> then we traveled over to the Christian Youth Theater. And there's people in the community who have been so gracious to uh, allow us to inhabit some of their places. And it's been such a wonderful thing. And then God uh, has been uh, so gracious uh, in his will to have us meeting here uh, at 2415 Lifehouse Industrial Drive on Easter weekend. Isn't that, isn't that poetic? Isn't that great? As great as this building is... My hope and my prayer is that's not why you're here tonight. I pray and hope and expect that you're here tonight to celebrate Good Friday, to celebrate uh, what was a uh, disastrous day in the lives of the disciples and the lives of all those there uh, during uh, the time Christ was crucified, uh, but how we call it as Christians in 2022, Good uh, but to understand Good Friday, we need to go back historically to what preceded what we call Good Friday. Uh, because just as it was dark and it was a troublesome time as uh, the religious leaders uh, came and, and arrested Jesus, there was another dark time in history that preceded Good Friday, but also sheds light on the importance of Good Friday and Easter and we can find that when we look in Exodus chapter 12 with the Exodus of Israel. Of course, you can flip there, but know that on Good Friday, this service, all the scriptures will be on the screen. I do encourage you to take notes, but everything will be right here on this massive screen that God has allowed us to have here. Uh, but what we need to understand as we go back to the Exodus in Israel, we've got to understand what in the world is going on. Why, are, why do we jump into Exodus 12 with a problem, and what is the problem? Well, as we look to the Exodus of Israel, the first thing we need to understand in the life of Israel in Egypt is this, that Israel was enslaved to Egypt. This was the problem uh, as uh, Israel was uh, petitioning to the Lord, as they were uh, crying out to God. We understand the fundamental primary problem with Israel is they, they were enslaved to Egypt. And this is what it says in Exodus 2 and verses 23 through 25. It says, During those many days the king of Egypt had died. That is the one who knew Joseph. And uh, Joseph is no longer around. You have Moses and Aaron. And you, you don't have anybody around who was, was alive with, with Joseph and, and the Pharaoh before. And so you have these people who forgot the graciousness of Joseph and how Joseph led them out of famines. And now you have a new Pharaoh in charge. And, and here's what happens. Uh, the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and they cried cried out for help. And their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And God saw the people of Israel and God knew. So we need to understand this fundamental issue as we look at the Exodus narrative because the problem was they were slaves. They were completely controlled and under the authority uh, and complete utter uh, domination of Egypt. And so here's what happens. We have, we have 
Israel crying out to God, and we have God doing something really important for us in the biblical narrative, and that is God pronouncing judgment. God is pronouncing a judgment in the chapter 6 of Exodus to uh, tell uh, and foreshadow what is to come in Egypt after Egypt has enslaved Israel. And this is what it says, that I have heard the groanings of the people in Israel. And what I want you to focus on there is that highlighted verse. And it says this, that I'm going to deliver my people out of slavery, but I'm going to do it in a particular way. The particular way that I am going to deliver my people is with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. We, we love this as people who grow up in the Christian church. Yes, the Lord redeemed his people with great acts of judgment, and it was so great. Well, the idea of the acts of judgment is that God was pouring out his wrath on a disobedient nation and a disobedient people. In the outstretched arm, the idea of an outstretched arm isn't that God put his arm around you, but he put his hand against you. And so when we understand uh, the problem with God's judgment being pronounced, we see that it is with an outstretched arm and it is with great acts of judgment, which is bad news for Egypt, but it is the promise of deliverance for Israel. You see, God had condemned Egypt, condemned the sin of a pagan nation who didn't want to consider God or his will. And then we have people crying out to God, desiring that God would come rescue them. And so therefore, in the same verses, we have God's promise to redeem Israel. And that's what it says here. Uh, Look at the highlighted verses that I have. Uh, He says, I've remembered my covenant with you. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians and I will deliver you from slavery. And here's the news. Uh, You're going to be my people and I'm going to be your God. So that is the promise of deliverance. He's going to give uh, judgment with an outstretched arm, but with that same outstretched arm of judgment, he's going to then bring his people into himself. This is an important concept that we see in Scripture, and it's important that we remember that, that with God's judgment also comes God's providential care for his people. And so we see the problem that they were under slavery, uh, his promise of judgment, and his promise to bring people to himself. But it comes with this fundamental issue that we all have to come to grips with. And specifically, if we're going to understand the Exodus narrative, and it is this, that all sin will be atoned for. All sin. All sin has to be atoned for. And that is the theme that we see throughout all Scripture. As a matter of fact, uh, we, we think of the atonement in the Old Testament, especially in the Exodus narrative, you think uh, of this one. For here's what God is going to do after the night of the, at, at the night of the Passover, after the Passover dinner. Uh, I'm going to pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt. And here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to execute my judgments, for I am the Lord. That is God promising to do what he is committed to do, to deliver his people out of the hands of slavery. Now, what does that mean? What does that mean for uh, Israel? What does that mean for Egypt? Well, we understand that atonement needs to happen in both parties, right? We, when we think of the Exodus narrative, we understand that, yeah, everyone remembers the plague. You know, the angel of death comes over and kills all of the firstborn in Egypt. That is, they say firstborn because what it is is that firstborn is representative of the household. And so that one representative of the household is going to be how God punishes all 
of Israel. So that's important for us. It's important for us as we understand the rest of the New Testament how Christ is the firstborn son. That Christ is the firstborn son of, of God. And as well as this firstborn is the one who gets struck down in Egypt, both man and beast. The atonement for the sin of Egypt was that one person in each family, the firstborn, would be killed. Now, that's a lot of times I think that's where we may stop. But we need to understand that that's not the only atonement. That's half of the atonement of the Passover. The other half of the atonement of the Passover comes in Exodus 12, 1 through 13. I'm going to read it. It's a long one, but it's, in, it's necessary. Starting in verse 1 and verse 12, it says this. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. So we're going to mark our calendar according to this month because of what's about to happen is going to be of utmost importance for you for the history of the existence of the nation of Israel, the people of God. And here's what it says. You need to tell all the congregation that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's house, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat, and shall make your count for the lamb. And your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day. I want you to think of the picture here when it comes to the atonement that God is helping and pointing Israel to. He said, listen, you're going to take a lamb, and you're going to take it out of the sheepfold, and you're going to bring it into your house. And you're going to take care of that lamb for five days. That lamb is going to eat with you. It's going to sleep with you. Your kids are going to pet it. Your kids are going to name it. Your kids are going to love it. And it's going to be your child's pet. And then what's going to happen after five days, you're going to kill it. You're going to kill it and your children are going to scream. Your children are going to be upset and mad and angry that you killed it because they grew a fond relationship with that animal. That's the entire point. You're going to bring that thing into the house because you're going to have to understand that there is a cost for sin. You see, Israel wasn't without sin. We understand in the Old Testament that Israel would sin quite often. And Israel wasn't without sin. And there had to be an atonement, not just on the, the Egyptians who were disobedient and would not repent, but there also had to be an atonement for the people of, of Israel. There also had to be a representative, if you will, to take the culpability of the sin of Israel and put it on the thing. And the thing that we see here is the lamb. And so we see here on the 14th day, the congregation of Israel would kill their lambs at twilight. Now, they're going to kill it at twilight, and then they're going to do something really important for us as Christians to understand. They, they killed this lamb, and then they took uh, the blood, they put it in a bowl, and with a hyssop branch, they walked over to the front of their home to the doorposts. And as God had commanded, they took the blood of the lamb that they had known and cared for, the lamb that their children had named, and they see the blood in the bowl, and God says, you need to do something really important. You need to take some of that blood, and you need to put it, one on the doorpost, another on this doorpost, and over the lintel on the top of the doorframe. And it's important that after you sacrifice this lamb that you, that you bonded with, that you put the blood to represent your home, 
to put the blood on the front door that represents your household, that represents the people in your home. And we're going to do something. What does that mean? Okay, you're going to take that blood and you're going to put it on the doorpost and you're going to put it on the lintel of the house and they're going to eat it. And then, verse 8, then what you're going to do with that, the meat of that animal, here's what you're going to do. The pet your children have fed and cared for, they're going to take that meat and you're going to cook it and you're going to feed it to them and you're going to make them like it. And you're going to take it you're going to eat the flesh that, that, that night, roasted in fire with unleavened bread and with bitter herbs, they shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted, its head and with its legs and with its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning, you shall burn. Now listen to this. Here's an important way uh, that you have to eat this particular meal that we call the Passover meal. Here's how you eat it. Okay, uh, You eat it this way, with your belt fastened, with sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. Here's the, here's the, the concept, okay? This isn't a meal for you guys to lean back on and hang out and, and eat and play Yahtzee afterwards, okay? This is, a, this is a purposeful meal. This meal is something you need to do because I'm about to do something in the lives of your households, and I'm about to do something in the lives of Israel, and I'm taking you somewhere. Okay, most of us don't like to get dressed in, in, in work clothes when you sit down for dinner at night. And that's the whole point here is God is saying you're going to be ready to go and we're leaving. We're going somewhere. You're eating this meal uh, not to relax and have an enjoyable meal. You're eating this meal because I'm about to do something and you need to be ready and prepared. And I'm showing you something. Because he says, listen, this is the Lord's Passover that lamb was your atonement. The blood of that lamb put on the doorpost of your home was the representation of my wrath being poured out in Egypt. And I have spared you through the lamb, and I have poured out my wrath on a sinful Egypt. Now, I'm going to pass through the land, land in verse 12 of the land of Egypt that night. And I'm going to strike the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and all the gods of Egypt. I'm going to execute judgment. And the blood, that precious blood of the lamb that is on the lintel and on the doorpost of your home, on that house where you live, that precious lamb that you raised, that you, you kept for four days and your kids loved it, when I see that blood, I'm going to pass over you. And all the plagues... All the things that I'm going to strike the land with, they're not going to befall you. They're not going to destroy you. But I'm going to execute judgment. And everyone is responsible for atonement. Everyone is culpable for atonement. And God had made a way for his people to receive the atonement of the blood of the Lamb. Now, it doesn't end there. As a matter of fact, when you read in the Exodus story, it just goes, it goes up from there, doesn't it? It gets a little more anxious ridden, a little more stressful, a little more crazy, doesn't it? Because there's something else that goes with it in the life of Israel, and it's this, that Israel must turn from Egypt. We have the Passover meal because it was preparing them to get ready to go somewhere, and it was away from the sin of Egypt. As a matter of fact, the, the word exodus means exit. right? I mean, you see all of these exit signs around you in this room, and it's to point you to get out of here. And the whole book of Exodus was, a, was the narrative of how Israel had to get out of town. It was how Israel could no longer stay in the sin and the disobedience of Egypt that God had made a way for them to get out, and he's taking them somewhere. 
And we need to understand, at least as we understand the context of the Exodus and the Passover meal, that the whole purpose was that Israel would be taken out of slavery. That they'd be taken and freed by God for a price. And they also had to do this. They had to trust in God's provisions. He said, you need to eat this in haste. I didn't give you time to pack your favorite blankie or your doll. I didn't give you a whole lot of time to pack all of the food in the pantry. And you can't take your new, you know, your new horse and buggy, okay? We got to go. We got to get out of here. And he's saying, as a matter of fact, what you need to do is you need to trust me. Because where I'm taking you, your goods are no good. Where I'm taking you, you're not going to be able to make it through the things that we're going through if you want to take the world with you. You got to leave it behind because where I'm taking you, this is how it's going to work. As a matter of fact... He needs Israel to know that I am the Lord. You're not God of your life. I'm God of your life. As a matter of fact, uh, I'm going to bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. You're not going to bring yourself out. I'm going to do it. As a matter of fact, I'm going to deliver you from slavery. I'm going to redeem you. You can't redeem yourself. I'm redeeming you. I'm paying for you. I'm going to take you. I will be your God. You see the concept here, right? God is taking responsibility, and he's saying, you are mine. I am the one providing provision for you, and I have provided the atonement for you, the provision for you, and I am going to be the one who makes all of these things happen. And he says, I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. You see, it's, it's a theme throughout the Old Testament that uh, God doesn't want Israel to get too big for their britches. That God doesn't want Israel to think they've done anything on their own because, in fact, they couldn't. And he didn't even want them to fool themselves into believing they did. And he wants to make it very clear that as you exit Egypt, it was all on the Lord's timing and in the Lord's provision. And he didn't want them to forget one important fact of the matter is they belonged to God. They were not their own. They had been redeemed for God. They had been rescued to God. They were there for God's good pleasure. As a matter of fact, in Exodus 19, we see that. Uh, and here's what he says in verse 5. Right? You need to obey my voice, and you need to keep my covenant. Here, here, this, is, this, is the, uh, this is how this is going to work, Israel. Okay? I'm taking you out of Egypt in your mind. Okay? I have rules. I have covenants. You keep them. Here's what's going to happen. You're going to be my treasured possessions among all people. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom. That's important because that is one of the covenantal promises of the Old Testament, that God was going to give them a great nation. He promised Abraham, I'm going to make you a great nation, and I'm going to give you a land. Okay? And God is reminding them of the covenantal promises that he had given their forefathers, that I'm going to make you a kingdom uh, not of your own. You're going to be a kingdom of priests. You're going to be a kingdom who worships and serves me. You're going to be a kingdom that people look at, and when they see you, they see me. And I'm going to make you a nation that I promised your father Abraham. But you're not just going to be a nation that rules yourself. You're not going to be a nation who gets to go off on your own way. You're my nation, so you have to be a holy nation. You are a nation that is set apart for my purpose. It's consecrated. You're set apart for a holy purpose, a different purpose altogether than all the nations around you. You are here for a reason. And that's why I'm going to rescue you. For myself. And these are the words that you shall speak to the people, Israel. This is the promise of God that, that, we, that, that Israel is God's possession. Uh, and he wants them to do one important thing uh, as they leave Egypt. As they leave Egypt, God wants them to do this. And you see this all throughout the Old Testament. That 
He wants Egypt to remember his faithfulness. And that's important for all the, the, the Bible, from the Old Testament to the New Testament, that we understand the principle of remembering God's faithfulness. That we don't forget where God has brought us and where God is taking us. Because he says this towards the end of the Passover feast in Exodus 12. And here's, here's what he says. You shall observe this rite. That is the Passover. Right? After they're out of the land, uh, they're going to be celebrating this same meal that they celebrated the night of the angel of death coming over the, uh, all their homes and the blood was on their doorpost. Uh, that wasn't just a one-time thing. Right? This is something that you need to be celebrating every year as a rite to be observed, as a statute for you and for your sons for a couple of years. No. Forever, right? Forever is how long we do this. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you, as he has promised, you shall keep this service. Don't forget me when life is going well. Don't forget me when you're at the place that I told you you were going to go. You cannot forget you're going to keep this thing. You're going to keep it going. And when your posterity grows up and your children, when they say to you, what do you mean by this service? When, when the great-great-grandchildren and all the people alive were never at the Passover, when they were never fleeing Egypt, uh, God wanted to create an opportunity and a way for people to know what God had done to get them out of slavery, to get them out of captivity. And he says, this is what you're going to say. It is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he has passed over the house of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians, but he spared our homes. Right? That's why we're going to keep the Passover meal, because God made a way for us out of his judgment, out of his condemnation and on his wrath. God has allowed us a way out of it. So we celebrate this meal every single year to remind all the generations of Israel that God spared his people from his justice. And here's the only response to such a truth, to such a understanding of God's graciousness towards his people is that the people bowed their heads and they worshiped. You see, if we're going to understand Good Friday, right? if we're going to understand uh, what we do as Christians, we can't forget about the Passover. We can't forget about Exodus and how God took a people who were enslaved and made them free, not for themselves, but for him. And he bought them and took them into himself, and he had a purpose and a plan and a place for them to go. We have to start there, because if we don't start there, we're not going to understand this, that Christ is our Passover lamb. As a matter of fact, Israel was enslaved to Egypt, but all people and all mankind are slaves to sin. We find ourselves in a predicament much like Israel in that we groan all the day long and we reach out to God because we understand that there is something at work in our lives and we are under the control of sin. You and me, the one sitting to your left, the one sitting to your right, the one standing on stage, are all slaves of sin. As a matter of fact, Christ said it this way, I say to you that everyone who practices sin is a slave of sin. Everyone who practices sin is a slave of sin. There's no one outside of the parameters of sin. As a matter of fact, Romans 3.23 says it. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Israel was a slave. Everyone alive on earth today is a slave. And it's our problem. It's the one we were born with, the one that we were created with, the one that we have to take with us throughout our whole life, and the one question that needs an answer. We're slaves of sin. 
And because we are enslaved to sin, God has also done something, and he's pronounced judgment. That God has pronounced judgment, and we see it in Romans 6.23. For the wages of sin is death. You see, there is a payment, a reward, if you will, for sin, and it is death. That's what, we, that's what we can offer in the relationship. That's the only thing that we have, and God is going to reward that. The wage, the payment for that is death. That's what we bring to the table in the relationship with a holy God, sin. And if I take that to the counter and check out, the thing I get in return is death. That's the, the judgment, and that's the justice of God. And here's a reason why it's so difficult for people to understand the concept of their sin. It is this, that you have a hard and impenitent heart. Right? You have a heart that doesn't seek God, that doesn't know God, that doesn't desire God, that doesn't want anything to do with God and His righteousness. When you even hear the word righteousness, you growl in your belly because you don't want to hear it. Because no one's perfect. We're all falling short. That is the problem. And God has a solution. And so we see that we are storing up for ourselves wrath. On the day of wrath, when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. It's an important thing to understand uh, in this world, especially if you're a Christian. The reason you're a Christian is because you understand this, that there is a day that God has on his eschatological timeline where he is going to come and he is going to repay each person. And we understand that this is the reason that we have to have the deliverance of God because there is the wrath of God that's coming. Just like it was coming upon Egypt and each of the firstborn in all the homes of Egypt were now representative of that household, all paid the price for their sin. The difference between what Egypt dealt with and what we all deal with is uh, we're all responsible and culpable for our own individual sin. There is no household representation uh, in the life of the justice of God. That is, I can't put it off on my older brother at home who's going to take it for me. I've got to take it for myself, and you're going to take it for yourself. But here's the good news, that God is also in his outstretched arm as he puts judgment and great acts of judgment on the world. God has also, with that same outstretched arm, he has also provided deliverance. Matter of fact, Isaiah 53, 3 through 7, paints the picture this way. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our grief, he has carried our sorrows, yet we esteem him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgression. He was crushed for our iniquity. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. You see, there was a problem, and there had to be an atonement made. There had to be a transaction that was made. And for us to have peace, there had to be punishment. We don't like the word punishment, but you do like the word justice, so you can put it that way. For there to be peace, there has to be justice. You know that in society today. That's why we have a court system. That's why we want the guilty to be guilty and we want the innocent to be innocent but because we want justice to be served. And at the end of the day, there is no innocent person in this world and we all deserve the justice of God. And for us to receive the peace, there has to be justice somewhere. And we find that 
when it says he is pierced for our transgression. He was crushed for our iniquities. He was given the justice that we deserve and the chastisement that we deserve so we could have peace. And with his wounds, that is, with the very wounds in his body that pour forth the blood of forgiveness, we are healed. And all we, like sheep, have gone astray and have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet opened his mouth not, like a, listen to this, lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. See, we're painting a picture, and God is painting this picture, that should be clearly seen and understood in the life of, of all believers. And it was very obvious to John the Baptist in John chapter 1 when he said this. He saw Jesus walking up, coming toward him, and he said, Behold, there is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The Holy Spirit had revealed to John the Baptist that the one who is approaching him is going to be the sacrificial lamb that does atone for and give justice to a fallen, sinful world. It was no secret to John the Baptist, and he wanted to articulate it clearly to all the people in earshot. But if we're going to understand this whole Lamb of God concept, we need to understand this, that we have to grasp God's justice system. We do. I mean, we have to understand that God has a justice system, and it has parameters, and it has a code. It has a penal code, if you will, and we have to understand it. If we're going to understand what's with the blood on the lintel, what's with this whole blood and Jesus thing, Okay, well, here's what you got to understand. In Hebrews 9.22, says it very plain and clear that under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. As a matter of fact, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. Without the justice of God being poured out that produces the death of something will not produce forgiveness for anyone. And this is Penal Code 1.1 1 .1 in God's justice system. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. No good works, right? No, no apologies, right? No, no amount of all the things that you could ever do in the world add up to salvation and add up to peace without the shedding of blood. We understand also in God's justice system that there is also justice handed out in two different ways, just like we saw in Exodus, right? In Exodus, we saw God pouring out his justice on Egypt, and we saw God pouring out his justice through representation on Israel. And in the same way, we have to understand that. And if we're going to be Bible literate, we need to understand that the times of ignorance God has overlooked. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent, to turn, to turn away from the life lived with themselves, to turn away from their sin. And here's why. Here's why God is so desirous that people repent. Because he has fixed a day. I mean, like I said earlier, there's an eschatological date on the calendar that God has known from eternity past that is coming and that is looming and that is imminent that God is going to judge the world. And he's going to do it in per perfect righteousness. All the justice that you've wanted to be served for all the history of the world is going to be served exactingly on the day of the judgment of God. And he's going to do it by a man whom he has appointed. 
In this, he has given them assurance to all by raising him from the dead. That is, this, this Christ who was buried, who was crucified, who was raised, because he can no longer die, because he has been resurrected, he's going to be the one, and he's going to be the one for sure, because I'm going to make you understand that he's never going to die. That he's always going to be alive, and he's exalted to the right hand of the Father, and he will there forever be the Lord of the universe. And it is through that God that on the day of the day of judgment, he will be the one who will judge in all perfect justice. Right? I mean, that is both good news for God as he takes his hand, his strong arm, and exacts judgment, but with that same arm, he is bringing people in. Right? Because he's bringing people in because we all understand that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, but we're justified by his grace as a gift. That is, you and I have been justified by God. Justified. I, it's, it's just if I had not. right? That I can live just if I had never been condemned by God in Christ Jesus. I can understand that God has atonement for the whole world. And it's for you in your life to respond to the kind of atonement that you want in your life. Do you want the atonement on the day of when we're all going to be judged? Well, there's another atonement, another opportunity that looks like this. That we have this gift of the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God has put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. And that is this, that God shows his righteousness and he shows his forbearance in this. That through the blood of Christ, on not the doorposts and the lintel, but on a different kind of wood, on a cross, that that blood in God's righteousness, in his divine forbearance, he would then pass over former sins. That is, by the blood of this wood and not by the blood of that wood, we too could find peace with God. That is, you and I have this opportunity that God would pass over our sins if we too would have the blood that was on this cross on our own lives. Not representative because your dad did it or your grandmother did it or your brother did it, but we all are culpable before a holy God and we all have the responsibility to make sure the blood of the Lamb is on our own lives. And it was to show this. That his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ. I want you to see the connection because it's there and it's meaningful and necessary. That as big of a deal as the Exodus and the Passover was, it wasn't the main point. It was pointing to the point. And the point was that it isn't the blood on the doorpost that saves. It's the blood on the cross. And we all must understand that God's desire is to see people saved and for him to pass over their sins. And we have a representative, and the representative is Christ. And here was, here's what has to happen. Just like Egypt would turn, or just like Israel turned from Egypt and ran away and belted themselves, girded themselves up, and got ready to leave Egypt, we also have to turn from sin. Right? Remember, I told you Exodus meant what? Exit? Okay, well, here's a really good news for us. Do you know the word church comes from two Greek words, ek and klesia? Ek 
ekklesia, okay? Ek means out or out of, and klesia comes from the Greek word kaleo, which means uh, called, okay? And so we understand those two words together come through the, we get the Greek word ekklesia, or those who have been called out. Israel was called out of Egypt. Christians have been called out of sin and into Christ. And we get that word translated in the New Testament, church. So anytime you say church, you understand you're saying those who have been called out of sin and into Christ. Because that's the only way that the representation of Christ covers us. That's the only way that the representative blood of Christ on the cross atones for your sin and my sin is through him. Through him calling us out of our sins. And here's what that looks like. I mean, for us to turn from sin looks like Acts 20, 21. And that is this, to testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God. There has to be this uh, def- definite moment, this moment in life where I have said, I'm done with Egypt and I'm out. I'm preparing, I'm done, I'm out, I'm no more, I'm not putting one foot in Egypt and one foot out, I'm out. I'm part of the called out, as a matter of fact, which when I'm called out, I don't live in sin. And so for me, I'm going to turn, repent, metanoia. I'm going to turn. I'm going to make an about face. I was going this way, and God has taken me this way. That's what it means for us to turn from sin. But I also need to do this, one and two, really two and the same, one thing. Two words, one decision. I need to trust in Christ. And what does it mean to trust in Christ? The rest of Acts 20, 21 says it this way. That we need to have faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Faith, the Greek word pistis, or you can say trust. Okay, That is for you and I to trust in Christ. You say this all the time, don't you? I trust in the Lord. But what does it mean to trust in the Lord or trust in Christ? Well, fundamentally for the believer, it means one thing specifically, and that you trust in the blood of the Christ for atonement. That you trust that his blood is sufficient for your sins. That you trust and believe that that blood was all that it took to get God to pass over your sins. And so you can trust in the Lord for all manners of things, but if you've never trusted in the Lord to pass over your sins, you indeed do not trust in the Lord. Because to trust in the Lord means that you have to have turned from your sin and trust in Him that God would pass over your sin. Just like Israel trusted that if they put the blood on the doorpost that God would pass over their house on the day of judgment, that the Christian's great hope, and I mean great hope, is that on the day of God's judgment, we stand justified, we stand not condemned, because as God's the day of judgment comes over, He's going to pass over our sin. But just like Israel, it doesn't stop there. As a matter of fact, every Christian needs to understand that we ourselves live as God's possession. That's really what it says there in Romans 6.20. Right here, it says, And you were slaves of sin. I mean, that's the truth. We go all the way back to the beginning. We were slaves of sin. And you were free in regard to righteousness. What he means by that is saying you had no ability to do what God desires. You had no ability to live right in your own life because you were enslaved to something completely different. And then I'm going to understand that the fruit of that was of what point? The fruit of that was for what good of mine? Because it says here, what fruit were you getting 
at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed. Isn't that where we all live? We're enslaved to sin. You don't even want to talk about what life looked like. I don't want to talk about the mistakes I made. I don't want to talk about the decisions I made. I don't want to talk about the things that happened in my life because I was enslaved to them and I'm ashamed. That's that's the fruit of sin. That's the fruit of the enslavement that we've all been caught under. That's what it says. For the end of those things is death. There it is, right? For the wages of sin is death. The fruit of your enslavement is death. We understand there is no good news for those who aren't in Christ because it all leads to death. Everything leads to death that isn't in Christ. But now you have been set free from sin not to do your own will. You've not been set free from sin to now live your whole life free, willy, and do whatever you want. No, you've lived uh, set free from sin and have become slaves of God. That is, you have been transferred from one ownership to the other ownership. Okay, put it uh, more specifically and poetic for you. You love the idea of being God's possession. You love the idea of God saying, I have redeemed you, I have chosen you, and I have paid the price for you. Okay, all slave language. Every one of those phrases are God explaining to you that I bought you, you are mine, and I have bought you for a purpose. And in the same way, we see here that we have been set free, not for ourselves, but for God. And the fruit, though, you're getting death earlier. Here's what you're getting now. Right? The fruit leads to sanctification. That is, you are being progressively, as you live every single day in your relationship with God, in the will of God, you're being conformed into the image of God. I mean, that is the great news for us that we're no longer uh, bankrupt and going up to the counter and getting death as our payment. We're actually being conformed into the image of God. We're being conformed into the image of God. And you know what's going to happen at the end of this whole thing? We're going to receive eternal life. Of course, everyone's going to receive eternal life. But in what way? For those not in Christ, you're going to receive eternal life in a way that ends in death. But for those who are in Christ, who understands the penal substitutionary atonement that happened on the Christ, we're, on, on the cross, we're going to receive eternal life. Not eternal death, eternal life. Because we understand for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ. I want you to not leave here not understanding that it is in Christ. Your life isn't yours, it is in Christ. Your life exists within Christ, who he is, what he desires, what he says, what he does. All of your life is enveloped in the simple fact that you are his and not your own. But just like all faithful followers of God throughout history and throughout ages, there's still something left for us. Even when we understand the gospel, even when we respond appropriately to the gospel, we have to understand this at the end of the day, that we need to remember God's faithfulness. Just like Israel, when they were coming out of Egypt, God reminded them, every year you're going to celebrate the Passover. Every single year you're going to celebrate what I have done to get you out of enslavement. And for the Christian, it doesn't end with us. As a matter of fact, the Passover meal became uh, fully illuminated in what it truly meant to be God's people. And for us, we remember God's faithfulness in our Passover meal that we call the Lord's Supper. So I'm asking the the ushers if you could make your way down with our own elements. 
that we, just like Israel during the Passover and every subsequent year and generation after generation and decade after decade and century after century, all the way up until even the life of Jesus when he transformed the whole Lord's Supper, the whole Passover into the Lord's Supper, they were eating it from the Exodus all the way to the life of Jesus Christ. And even today, faithful Jews are still celebrating the Passover. But in Christ, in Christ, we understand the significance of this Passover meal. That we understand this, the simple fact about the Passover meal. That as Jesus called the disciples together in the upper room, that they had this feast laid before them. What used to be a lamb that was roasted is now taking the place of unleavened bread and fruit of the vine. Where's the lamb? Why aren't we cooking the lamb? Jesus, where's the roasted lamb and the bitter herbs? Where is that thing that's roasted that we have to eat in haste to remember what God had done? And we can hearken back to John the Baptist when he says, Behold, there's the lamb. Behold, there's the lamb of God, and he's the one that takes away the sin of the world. The lamb was eating with the disciples. And that's why he looked and he said, you have this bread, take it and eat it because it's my body. You no longer are going to celebrate the Passover meal looking back to the Exodus. You're going to eat the Passover meal and look forward to what God has for his people who have turned from their sins and have trusted in the atonement of Christ. We no longer look back to specifically the exodus of Egypt. We as Christians look back to the upper room discourse and how Jesus completely illuminated for us what it meant for the blood of the Lamb to be representative of your and I's forgiveness. And so that's why we take these and we remember. We take these and we remember God's faithfulness because we don't want anyone to forget We don't want anyone to forget what God has done. And as a church, we don't want anyone to forget where we were and where God has placed us. And as our children grow up, right, as children grow up, we want to continue reminding them uh, this represents the body of Christ and his blood that was poured out for us, which is the new covenant poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And so at this time, I want you to take the bread. And I want, you, I want you to bow your head and pray with me. God, what we understand as we look at your word when it comes to this, when it comes to this representative element of the bread, that it does something for us, not in its salvific grace that I eat this bread and become something different, but that it points me to the event in time that happened that led to my forgiveness, and that is your body being hung on a cross. And God, I pray that as we eat this, that we would remember what it took for our forgiveness. The pain that was involved, that you, oh God, would step out of heaven and onto earth to be our representative. That we would not have to be facing the justice of God, but that we would be freed from our slavery and purchased by you. So God, let us understand what this bread means. Let us eat it with joy and thanksgiving. In Christ's name, amen. And next, he took a cup, and he had given thanks over this cup, and he gave it to them. 
And he says, drink it, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. When we drink this cup, the fruit of this vine, we understand it not as a salvific element that as I take it becomes something that it is not, but that it helps me remember what God has done on our behalf, and that is he created a covenant in his blood that whoever would have the blood of Christ on them would have eternal life. Let's pray. God, I pray that as we take the cup, that we would truly remember on this Good Friday what this signifies. That it was blood that offers forgiveness. That without, the, without blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. And for us to understand in your judicial code 1.1 that there is no other option but for blood to be spilled for the forgiveness of our sins and that we were culpable for it, but you put that culpability on Christ. And God, let us recognize as we drink this that uh, it could very well be us on that cross but in your kindness and mercy, it was Christ. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. It is a good Friday. Indeed, it's a good Friday. But I never want you to come in here and, and get on the spiritual high that you kind of lose as you walk out the doors. What you need to remember, much like Israel had to remember, is that God had them on a path of faithfulness forever. And for the Christian, we understand that God has a, a path of faithfulness for us to walk down for the rest of eternity. And it doesn't end when you walk out these doors, and it doesn't end after Easter when we rah-rah and post on social media, he is risen, he is risen. Uh, he's also uh, just as risen on uh, you know, June 3rd, 28th as he is uh, this weekend. And he's just as risen every day of the year as he will be this weekend. And for you to not get the spiritual high of this weekend and run as far as you can on your own strength, and then give up. But you understand that it is God who provides, gives you the provision, and leads you in triumphal procession, spreading the fragrance of the knowledge of Christ everywhere. You know that verse? And so my hope and my goal for you is that not only you leave here tonight, but you come back with somebody on Easter who needs to hear the gospel. That you come back with somebody who needs to hear the saving news of the blood of Christ for the, rem for the remission of sin on our behalf, that somebody needs to hear that. And that somebody would respond to the gospel and be brought into the family of God because you took time this week to invite somebody to church. I want to encourage you and commission you to do that, but not just on Easter, but every week. That you would go out remembering the Passover, that Christ passed over your sins. Let's pray. God, we do thank you. For, for the Good Friday, God, that we get to celebrate something really, really good when something looked really, really bad. God, we're so grateful for what you have done in our lives individually as, as corporately in our church. God, that you have done so many great things, provided for us in so many ways, but none more important, none more uh, pivotal, God, none more emits than Christ on the cross. God, as we end in worship tonight through song, God, that that would permeate our lives and go out with us tonight. And we pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.